Welcome to Night Light. Step away from the mainstream and gather around as we enlighten the world and our realities and travel this cosmic journey we call life. Join us as we share with you and provide that beacon that can guide us all to a better way. Explore with us as we examine a metaphysical montage of spiritual insights covering everything from the mundane to the magical, UFOs to unicorns, and everything in between. This is a time of awakening, of sharing and evolving, of spreading our wings and soaring on the cosmic breath of creation. Come and join with other light-minded spirits as we weave our lights together to seek understanding, enlightenment, and with a little luck, some wisdom. This is Nightlight, a reminder that you are never alone. everybody to Nightlight. So glad you could join us. So glad that you would share your time with us. And um, it's going to be an exciting evening for sure. I want to thank Ken Quiethawk for his amazing intro. Please check him out on the internet. You can find him. He's Ken Quiethawk. And he and his wife have uh, an, an amazing website. Don't know if that's still up, but you can find him and his stories um, on the on the internet, and I highly recommend you check into the Native Storytellers because they have a profound way of preserving history that sits in your memory a lot more easily than textbook material does. So please check it out. Mark has a great show tonight. Going to be enlightening and probably a little titillating here and there. But as always, he's got an amazing guest. So, Mark, show is all yours. Thanks. How's uh, everything in your area? Locked down and quiet. Okay. Hopefully uh, this show will will help people get through the quarantine. Uh, Since I'm on the air, Blog Talk's English Robo Babe must think that uh, I've finally become essential uh, we have a guest making his debut with us, uh, but Michael Hall is not a stranger to the airwaves. Michael hosts the Sunday Night Spaced Out Radio on Mondays. You can see him on his UFO I team on uh, Facebook live stream uh, on Thursday, uh, the last Thursday of each month. Uh, you can see Michael on introspection, and he's a guest on many other shows. Uh, Michael was a vice president of the Puget Sound Christian College. He has earned his doctorate in jurisprudence, which has given him the nickname of the paranormal lawyer. Uh, he has also worked with MUFON He's an author and served chicken noodle soup to Frank Sinatra. 
Hi, Michael. Hey, Mark. Oh, gosh, that's a great introduction. I really appreciate that. All the way from Sinatra to uh, to the paranormal lawyer. Love it. I worked hard on that one. <laughs> you did. So, so, yeah. Uh, so we have uh, a lot to cover for you know, about the next two hours. Uh, and since you're uh, making your debut with us tonight, I have a feeling uh, you, you'll be back soon. Um, you know, want to get to uh, know you a little bit. Uh, you know, maybe some of the uh, listeners uh, don't realize that you were a Super Bowl halftime performer. Uh, <laughs> Boy, you're, you're digging there, buddy. Thank you. So thank you for yeah, that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to see any photos, but uh, you know, if you had a wardrobe malfunction, but you know, we're, <laughs> we're, uh, you know, what, what's the uh, story with uh, you uh, being involved with a uh, halftime show? Well, I'll tell you, um, back in the uh, 70s, uh, I was lucky enough uh, to be uh, a cast member for the group Up With People. Traveled literally the world with uh, 120 kids from around the world. Uh, from different countries, and uh, we had a two-hour musical performance that we put on. I think the oldest uh, member of our troupe at that point uh, was a 25-year-old cast director. Everybody else was that or younger. And um, uh, people don't really probably remember up with people back then in the Super Bowl days, but we did the most Super Bowls of any group or any individual or or band at all uh, during the uh, the history of the Super Bowl. We did five Super Bowl halftimes, and uh, it was just an awesome experience, obviously, uh, to be on the field. This was the Super Bowl 19. Um, this was uh, the Super Bowl at the Rose Bowl, by the way. I mean, you know, you can't get any better than that as far as the venue goes. Uh, this was the Pittsburgh Steelers and the L.A. Rams at the time, and it was an awesome experience to uh, be on the field and perform for uh, literally, you know, hundreds of people, hundreds of thousands of people, uh, not only on the field, but uh, around the world as well. Millions of uh, folks were tuning in to those performances, and it was kind of fun to be able to be a part of that. I bet it was. Okay. Very interesting. And so, you know, were you, were, were you singing in the on the field or just in, in, involved um, in, in the stadium? Oh, no, no. We were, uh, we were singing and dancing to choreography and our own brand of Up With People songs uh, on the field mm-hmm. uh, okay. and syncing up our, uh, our activities to, the, uh, to the, uh, the feed that we had from the network. So that was kind of an experience for us to be able to lip sync to our own songs, you know, to make sure we had good good audio. Cool. So, sounds like a neat experience. Okay. So, and you know, you've been um, on 
number of other shows uh, talking about the Admiral Wilson memo. memo. Um, okay, what is this memo about? When was it uh, discovered? What administration? Uh, what's the, the story behind that? And what are the consequences of it being uh, you know, made public? Right. Well, you hit really on a good subject for me to talk about here. Um, this literally has uh, been uh, dubbed by um, Richard Dolan, the UFO historian, as the mm-hmm. the major smoking gun memo of the century as far as um, what it says and who it was released by and uh, the uh, names and uh, projects and unacknowledged uh, special access programs that it discusses in this thing. And um, I happened, I just happened to be involved in the uh, memo itself uh, from the very beginning when this whole thing uh, came about. As a matter of fact, um, one of my uh, clients, Grant Cameron, uh, back way back in that uh, was January second of two thousand and nineteen, uh, sent me a encrypted text out of the blue, uh, and um, initially I'm going, oh my gosh, I had never received an encrypted text before. <laughs> didn't know who it was from. Didn't know what it was about, and I almost didn't open it up because I was just thinking this is maybe either spam or it's like way important and maybe I shouldn't know what's going on. But I finally opened it up and found out it was uh, my famous researcher ufologist uh, client, Grant Cameron. Now, it's a very short cryptic text he sends me. It says, uh, Michael, I'm about ready to drop a major UFO information bomb, and I needed to run up by you as the paranormal lawyer. (laughs) That's what he said on this text, and I'm just going, wait a minute. If Grant Cameron is telling me that he is about ready to drop a major uh, UFO information bomb, it must be huge. Um, This is the gentleman, by the way, Grant Cameron, who uh, literally in the 1970s uncovered another smoking gun memo uh, from a gentleman in Canada by the name of Willard Miller who basically was a uh, Canadian official who claimed in this memo that the United States government had told him that UFOs existed. And not only that, but it was the highest classified subject in the, in the, uh, in the U.S. government, higher classified than the atomic bomb at the time. So uh, when Grant Cameron comes across something unique, uh, you know it's going to be quite big. Um, literally at that point, I finally get a hold of Grant on the phone and he tells me a most amazing story of him being approached by a gentleman from Australia by the name of James Rigney after one of the conferences that Grant had, uh, just, um, been speaking at Grant gets, uh, you know, talked to, uh, after his speeches quite a bit. And uh, has lively conversations with the uh, pres- the people that listen to his uh, his great talks. 
And um, James Rigney is telling uh, Grant that he has a document that he thinks he would be very interested in seeing. And Grant says, oh, I, I would love to. I, I just don't have the time right now. I've got to uh, run out of here and jump on another plane to get to another conference. Can you can you email it to me? Um, James Rigney tells Grant Cameron, Mr. Cameron, all I need is five minutes of your time. And I think you will find it. Um, very fruitful. So all of a sudden, Grant goes, well, okay, I'll give him five minutes. And so uh, James Rigney pulls out his um, iPad mini uh, and pulls up the first page of the Admiral Wilson, uh, what they call smoking gun core secrets memo. And Grant's face goes ashen, literally. He sees names. He sees project names. Uh, he sees... Uh, uh, places and times that he can verify uh, are very significant in the history of ufology. <clears throat> and Grant tells um, Mr. Rigney, he says, where did you get this document? Um, the basic bottom line is Mr. Rigney got this document from another Australian friend of his who had received Edgar Mitchell's uh, documentation in banker boxes after Edgar Mitchell passed away. The Apollo uh, 14 astronaut, six man uh -huh. to uh, walk on the moon. Uh, and his family, uh, Edgar Mitchell's family, was not interested in keeping all of these old papers that uh, he had amassed in banker boxes over his uh, long career as a NASA astronaut and involved in uh, you know, the consciousness studies, uh, the, the free foundation and uh, NIDS, uh, Robert Bigelow and uh, all the other things that he had served on the board of directors with. So uh, the Australian decided to uh, help the family out and take the banker boxes. And then James Rigney was uh, the uh, ufologist who knew uh, what to look for in these banker boxes and came across a 15-page, um, mostly single-space document, by the way, Mark, uh, that uh, names names, programs, um, things that people were always wondering about, and of course we all have in the back of our minds existed. But uh, just to cut to the chase and tell you what this thing was actually uh, doing or actually talking about was it was confirming that there was a a crash uh, around 1947 of a major UFO saucer. The uh, retrieval of the uh, alien technology at the time, including alien bodies, dead and alive, and the fact that uh, the U.S. military, under some of these um, unacknowledged special access programs, had been trying to reverse engineer this alien technology, not of this world, not made by human hands, it says in the memo, uh, and not from uh, uh, another uh, terrestrial source. And it also confirms, supposedly, this document, that the military is in possession of a working craft that uh, can travel through interstellar space, through our atmosphere on the planet, underwater, and through dimensions. That dimension thing really hit me hard when I first saw this document. I literally had access to Grant Cameron's 
find of this document through James Rigney since January 2nd of last year, 2019. And so I was uh, vetting this document vociferously for months trying to figure out if there was uh, some, uh, you know, misinformation, disinformation, whether it was a hoax or not. Um, And of course, there's a a really interesting story about how this document actually uh, was released to the public that we can get into later. But that's, that's the short version of my involvement in the Admiral Wilson core secrets document. Okay. Is, is, the the memo talking about the Roswell crash or was it another uh, crash landing landing at the uh, wrong place? It does it does not specifically say the crash at Roswell, New Mexico. No, it says that um, matter of fact, Admiral Wilson in this document just to give people a little uh, idea of how this document is laid out, Admiral Wilson is being interviewed in this 15-page transcript memo by uh, purportedly Dr. Eric Davis, uh, the the top-level government scientist who has been involved in many, many um, black ops programs, uh, including uh, even... uh, Robert Bigelow's uh, National Institute of Discovery Science, a uh, colleague of uh, Dr. Russell Targ, a high-level government um, scientist interviewing uh, Admiral Wilson, who at the time was the Joint Chiefs of Staff, second-in-command, uh, J-2, who was in charge of all of the military intelligence departments of every military branch. And, of course, uh, Admiral Wilson had uh, been briefed previously to that by um, Edgar Mitchell and Dr. Stephen Greer and uh, others as well uh, that had had the inside information that the admiral himself didn't know about. And so at that point, the admiral had looked into some of these unacknowledged special access programs that were mentioned to him by Edgar Mitchell and Dr. Stephen Greer and found out that indeed they existed. And so when Admiral Wilson is now relaying the story to Eric Davis, he says he was actually in the um, uh, subcontract, the uh, civilian contractor organization in a SIF, a special information or uh, a secret information facility where no electronic devices can be uh, recorded or anything. And talking with that program's um, administrator, uh, that program's security director, who used to be an NSA, NSA officer, as well as the uh, corporate attorney. And these are the three gatekeepers that are telling Admiral Wilson about the things that are included in the memo, including the idea that there was a, a crash of an alien technology a long time ago is how it was described. And the fact that there were retrieved alien bodies, both dead and alive, and uh, the actual crashed uh, craft itself, and that they had now been for decades uh, trying to reverse engineer this uh, alien technology and, and figure out how it works. But 
because of the uh, uh, stove piping and the um, the special access that you have to have in clearances uh, to actually work on these projects, the uh, the civilian subcontractor and the others scientists from the government have been having a difficult time trying to get to the reverse engineering of this object because they necessarily had to have only people on the project working for them that were uh, had high clearance and they didn't necessarily were able to corroborate with other scientists that might be in the know and have a better way of trying to get this stuff uh, um, you know understood so that's what the memo is is talking about when it comes to this crashed craft uh, that happened decades ago do, do we know when Davis's interview took place? We do. Um, it was, uh, well, there's a little discrepancy on the actual day, but approximately April 9th of uh, 2002 is when this meeting took place between uh, Dr. Eric Davis and uh, Admiral uh, Thomas Ray Wilson in the back seat of uh, Admiral Wilson's staff car in the parking lot of the EG&G building at uh, McCarran International Airport in Las Vegas, Nevada, is where this actually took place in 2002. They were sitting there and had a meeting that lasted about an hour and 10 minutes uh, where Admiral Wilson was regaling uh, Dr. Davis of the fact that he was literally shut down by this civilian contractor not allowing him to have the details that he was asking for regarding UFOs and reverse technology uh, programs uh, because they said that the admiral (laughs) didn't have a need to know. He was not on their so-called bigot list of people who had the need to know. Um, And that course incensed the admiral uh, who literally went back to the Pentagon and confronted some of his colleagues and friends there saying, hey, this, this subcontractor is stonewalling me and letting me in on this, the uh, details of what their programs in, entail, and I am in charge, literally, of their programs. Now, the striking strangeness of that whole story is that Admiral Wilson was told by his colleagues at the Pentagon, this is what's laid out in the memo, by the way, that he needs to drop the subject immediately, not pursue it, and that if he does, he most likely will lose a few stars, be demoted, not get his pension, not get the the, um, advancement that he was looking for in the Department of Defense, and uh, never talk about this again. So that's been fascinating uh, as well, is the idea that... uh, The people on the know that um, should know what's going on uh, don't really necessarily know. And these independent subcontractors out there, civilian companies, by the way, are are having no oversight, it looks like, from government, uh, congressional, White House, or any other authorities above them, including the military. Very strange. Yeah, that is strange. So, um, is so, 
probably go into uh, more about the you know you being a, a paranormal lawyer, but it, it, you, know, you know just with your legal training, it, is there anything uh, illegal that you know, can, can be used to you know, just create doubt about uh, you know the, the government saying, oh, yeah, this is a, you know, a, a obtained illegally. You know, it just uh, the, the evidence can't be admissible. Uh, you know, we, uh, we know that um, Edgar Mitchell's, you know, personal papers were first, I, is there any thing about uh, like the Freedom of Information Act? Any uh, you have Canadian researchers get, getting this information? Is there anything that, uh, that can be used to debunk uh, th this memo? Well, there's uh, the real thing that has happened on uh, the release of this memo, which happened. Uh, literally around uh, June uh, 27th or so of uh, last year, when it uh, all of a sudden appeared on uh, on Reddit, on Twitter, um, and it was released to the public at that point. And there's a amazing story how it actually got there and then got out to the public as well. But uh, what happened shortly thereafter is that everything just went went total silence. Um, you would imagine that there were so many people that were mentioned in this memo, uh, so many players like Dr. Eric Davis, Dr. Russell Targ, um, Admiral Wilson himself, uh, and many other Pentagon employees that are named in this document. You would imagine that some of them would immediately come out and deny that they were ever involved in this memo or that they um, – said things that were attributed to them, and literally there was nothing heard for months and months. Uh, people tried to get a hold of the major players in the document to interview them, and literally uh -huh. um, they would say, and Russell Targ was one of these, who said that, you know, um, due to my ongoing uh, government uh, high-level secret classifications, even uh, denying confirming or denying anything regarding this kind of a core secrets memo um, is a breach of my security oath. So for a long period of time, there was nothing. Then very quickly about, well, in the beginning of February of this year, all of a sudden there seems to be some leaked uh, access some confirmation of these documents that took place, which was very startling to me in the person that was involved with Grant Cameron from the very beginning, because we had never heard anybody talk about the memo. Um, the latest thing that happened, uh, and your listeners might not know of this, but you can literally find Dr. Russell Targ uh, speaking uh, at a conference uh, in uh, West Virginia recently in February, actually, of this year, where he is asked after the uh, talk that he gives, um, which was called, by the way, the Department of Defense's 
Unidentified Aerial Phenomena Program. He's actually talking about the Department of Defense's unacknowledged program of UFO studies. And at the end of that talk, he has asked some questions from the audience. And one gentleman gets up and literally has the chutzpah at that moment to ask him, what about the Admiral Wilson memo, the core secrets memo that people have been talking about and that uh, you are mentioned in as well, Dr. Targ? Now, he didn't really jump right on that, but he did say some really amazing, revealing things. He said, uh, he repeated the question, he says, that has to do with the Admiral Wilson smoking gun memo, which was released on the Internet. And he says, it was my, my colleague, Dr. Eric Davis, who actually interviewed uh, Thomas Wilson, the Admiral, uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff, second in command uh, for that, uh, that memo. Uh, he didn't go into the details of the memo itself. And he said that since this seems to be an ongoing program, that he could not make any comment further. But the fact that he actually confirmed that his colleague, Dr. Eric Davis, actually did interview uh, Admiral Wilson uh, and produce this memo was a startling confirmation in itself. And with knowledge that you mentioned, uh, Earlier, when you're uh, describing the crash, what has been uh, learned of the technology uh, over in the next several decades uh, has any of these. People just acknowledge, well, you, you know, we got this from uh, you know, the, uh, you know, this 1947 crash landing. Or it, it, it just seems like with the crash landing that in the technology that the scientists uh, discovered, Discovered uh, the interdimensional travel and uh, you know the other things that you mentioned. Uh, are they? Isn't that like indirectly confirming that you know the government knows of UFOs and you know would some of the products or gadgets that are being used today, you know? Uh, also have to be admitted. Oh, yeah. Hey, you know, we got this idea from the 1947 crash. Yes, that's uh, that's one of those things that uh, all of us in this kind of field have thought of over the years. Uh, literally, if you um, kind of look at the timeline in general of the idea that if uh, if something crashed uh, that was un- uh, off this world onto our planet back in potentially the 1940s. Um, and we were reverse engineering and studying those uh, 
extraterrestrial technologies all this period of time, you would think that things like, for instance, um, uh, you know, the, uh, the super conductive uh, materials that we're coming up with, the miniaturization, you know, of the transistors down to, uh, you know, chips in your right. cell phone now. Uh, the uh, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, you know fiber optics and all those kinds of things seem to have popped up quite quickly. If you put everything into a timeline, uh, even back to uh, oh let's say the turn of the century, 1903, when the the Wright brothers first was were able to get heavier than air flight to work, you know, in in its infancy, and uh, mm-hmm. it took us quite a bit of time to actually make that a commercial venture. And then in the late 40s, early 50s, perchance, you would see all of a sudden quite a rise in the steep curve of technology, uh, literally to the fact where if indeed we landed on the moon in 1969, uh, less than 63 years or whatever since the Wright brothers were just able to lift off the planet, you wonder what kind of technology was there to help us uh, accomplish those events in such a short period of time. And it, 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 it seems like there has to be some indirect acknowledgement. Uh, okay. Hey, yeah, you know, we found the stuff and, and, and in the crash and that's what, you know, within 20 years, uh, you know, we you know we're putting a uh, on the moon. I think you make a really good analogy. You know, from 1903 to 1969, how do you go from like the Wright brothers gliding off a sand dune to landing on the moon? Works pretty pretty fast. You're right, uh, Mark, and actually that's, you know, the whole premise of uh, uh, Dr. or Colonel Corso's book, Day After Roswell, is all about the fact that uh, supposedly he claims he was in charge of seeding that uh, foreign technology, that he ran the foreign technology division for the military, uh, and supposedly using what they called foreign technology, which was literally off-world technology, uh, to uh, private industry, uh, giving them uh, a foot up on uh, some of the retrieved technologies that uh, that he was in charge of getting out to uh, private industry in in that era. And a fascinating book. Uh, if haven't people haven't not picked up uh, Dr. Corso, I mean Colonel Corso's book, The Day After Roswell. It's a fascinating study. Okay. And- uh, kind of stick uh, a, a similar theme, but you know, maybe move in a, another d- direction. Uh, you know, you've posted some uh, Skywatch videos, uh, what a couple nights ago, that uh, do seem like some. Uh, flying through the night sky, uh, one oh, what's called uh, this V-shaped 
of craft. I don't, I, 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 don't, I don't know what to make of that one. And then there was the line of equidistant um, crafts, so, something moving through the sky. There's a series of them. Uh, you know, was that your Skywatch video? Uh, what's the you know, story behind that? Yeah, well, um, that has been real fascinating on that post that uh, we we put up on uh, the UFO I-Team Facebook page. Uh, people can go there uh, even as we speak now and scroll down and catch those two videos. There's, Let me uh, describe both of them. The, the most recent one it's was bizarre. a uh, – Yeah, the most recent one would, uh, almost looks like it could be a flock of birds or geese, uh, way high up in the atmosphere, by the way. Uh, flying at night uh it's kind of a in a v shape and it kind of like morphs you know into different uh, iterations of v's as it goes by uh our uh initial analysis of that and it's not our video by the way we've uh, found these videos on the internet and then kind of you know put okay. them up for people's comment on our facebook page those two videos we're talking about tonight but uh, that first one, uh, or the latest one, looks as if it could be potentially uh, just a, a bird flock, uh, quite a large bird flock. But uh, uh, we're we're still analyzing that one. But the very uh, the very first one that really has gone viral on the internet, not just on our Facebook page, but all over the place, was um, literally the latest version of the SpaceX satellites that were released. Uh, very recently, where you'll see uh, in this video a line of 20 uh, SpaceX satellites that are equidistant from each other, uh, going from maybe the top of the screen at a 1 o'clock position, if you're looking at a clock face, uh, across the screen to maybe the 7 o'clock position down at the bottom right mm -hmm. left-hand corner. And uh, these uh, satellites seem to be either hooked together or very equally distanced from each other as they are de being deployed around the uh, Earth's atmosphere, when all of a sudden the very last uh, satellite in the line of SpaceX satellites almost seems to be attacked by another uh, anomalous object comes from potentially uh, the 4 o'clock position uh, on a clock face, and strikes up into the uh, maybe uh, 10 or 11 o'clock position against this stream of oncoming SpaceX satellites. And literally, uh, due to some of the enhancements that uh, uh, Cameron Hall on our uh, UFO I-Team has made, where you zoom in and uh, get closer and closer to this video and actually show the uh, closeness of this object coming into the last of that uh, SpaceX satellite um, images. It almost looks like it's bumping it out of line for a split second as it passes by. And that's been fascinating. This, this object, that the anomalous object, comes out of the middle of nowhere. It doesn't just come right. off the screen. It just comes, it manifests out of nowhere. And then... Um, goes right after the last satellite in line uh, and basically disappears 
uh, into nowhere right after that as well. That's the fascinating part of that. Not not necessarily that it's a SpaceX release of satellites because people are getting used to seeing those now, which are very dramatic in themselves. But the fact is, it looks like one of them was almost being targeted uh, to be taken out by some other um, object in the night sky. And we, we were able to enhance that at the UFO I-Team Facebook page. And so people can go there and see that very weird experience that, uh, that we've shown uh, on a video that had already been posted, but we kind of enhanced it a bit. Yeah. Again, the first one you discussed, um, said there's the possibility that it could be a a, uh, flock of geese Uh, in in the one that you uh, the the second one you described with the um, objects moving in a equidistant uh, order um, it could the ap- sudden appearance that seems to attack the last uh, uh, object in the line could could has that been ruled out as a bat, you know, a goose, uh, birds, something like that? It, 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 has anything been ruled out because it is very odd uh, a fly that landed on the flew close by the lens I, I I don't know I I don't have an explanation for it it's very odd yeah well of course we don't rule anything out of course mark but um, the interesting uh, thing about that object uh, is the fact that um, it does seem to have some kind of effect on the last satellite that is going by in the line of SpaceX satellites. It literally, if for instance, it was a a very close bug to the lens of the camera that was uh, uh, capturing uh, those SpaceX satellites, you would expect it not to have any effect at all in satellites in space. It would be just something that would happen to the lens very up close. Uh, But in reality, uh, we've enhanced that a version of the uh, satellite stream so close that it looks very definitely that something is either pushing that last satellite out of line slightly or actually hitting it, actually coming in contact with it. Uh, so that's that's fascinating stuff. We're, we're still in the process. Uh, uh, Cameron on our UFOI team is in the process of trying to get further enhancements of that video. Uh, with taking out some of the uh, extraneous, uh, you know, information noise in there with AI, um, you know, programs that he's got to be able to get a closer view of what really was going on uh, that that night. And, of course, the other one with the bird flocks, um, the reason that we're at this point kind of going with the bird flock was that uh, we have to remember that that, that um, uh, initial, that video was actually a, FLIR photography, night vision photography, that was uh, mm-hmm. also recording the uh, the uh, the heat signature from these items as well. And when you compare, like we have uh, 
technical guys on our UFOI team, Dave Mason and Lee Strauss and those guys, when, when they compare the, um, the heat signatures uh, that they can get from a flock of birds as opposed to an airplane, as opposed to a, a star or an anomalous object, it seems to fall in line uh, with their analysis so far that it looks to be uh, like a, the heat, heat signature of a flock of birds. So we'll see. Okay, it's. I, I, I was really captivated by both videos. I I didn't have an explanation for them. It's what you're discussing, uh, you know, about the uh, flock of birds does make sense. It's just um, I just want to get get your take on it. You have on your uh, Facebook page. It's, it, it, it's worth talking about and uh, considering all points of view. But yeah, the other, uh, the second video, I, I I don't have an explanation for that sudden appearance that seems to go after the satellite. But um, yeah, in, in in another interview, you were um, yeah, you spoke about. There, the human resident resonance with um, uh, some of the uh, crafts that have been um, recorded. Um, did you ha- do any of these videos? Uh, Give presents you know that uh, some kind of hertz signal you know give off some type of sound frequency. I, I yes, just, you know, just wonder if anything you know was uh, recorded on the uh, all the equipment that it was, is used by so many people. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, we are we are kind of finding some new new information. We believe in our our sky watches that we do quite often. Matter of fact, uh, just a couple of weeks ago, since uh, or even last week, since we have all been hunkering hunkering down and not going out into the field very often lately, um, we uh, have done some live sky watches on our UFO I Team Facebook page, where people can actually w- join us. Uh, when we are uh, doing sky watches and pointing out anomalous objects in the night sky. But um, recently we've been finding out that some of these anomalous objects that uh, that we're recording on videotape, on night vision, on FLIR photography, on uh, stop action photography, some of these things uh, we used to think in the old days they just traveled in a straight line, kind of like a satellite. Uh, maybe it was uh, faster or slower than a satellite, and maybe it was not a shooting star. But uh, now that we've got more sophisticated gear and equipment, we are finding that literally um, these things seem to be traveling in uh, a sine wave, uh, not a straight line, more something that would look like, for instance, the Schumann resonance of the actual planet itself. Uh, if people don't understand wow. what that what that means, the Schumann resonance is a uh, 
Oh, I think it's about an 80 mile uh, from the surface of the planet sphere around our own uh, Earth that uh, literally uh, vibrates. The Earth vibrates in a certain tone. They call that the Schumann resonance. It's uh, uh, 7.83 cycles per second, uh, and it can be recorded. And uh, basically everything on our planet uh, relates to that Schumann resonance because we're all from the planet Earth. What we're finding out in some of our uh, recordings now is that when we take the videotape that we've recorded, transfer it to an oscilloscope, and be able to analyze the uh, light wave patterns into sound, uh, that literally these, uh, these, these craft that look like they're traveling, they're anomalous, by the way, they're not uh, uh, satellites, they're not shooting stars, and they're not anything that we know of uh, that we can check on our equipment that uh, will tell us that it's uh, space junk or anything. But uh, we're finding out that these objects literally are traveling in the same Schumann resonance sine wave as the planet itself. Our theory could be, at this point, we're thinking if these uh, objects are entering into our near-Earth's atmosphere at about 80 miles out, that potentially they then adopt the actual Earth's frequency as they travel. Uh, and either for uh, the idea of potentially uh, either cloaking themselves from uh, uh, being picked up on uh, sophisticated radar or uh, potentially even uh, some kind of communication. Uh, the idea that they literally know that they can adopt our own Earth's resonance uh, to give us the idea that they are sentient beings themselves that know the difference between traveling in a straight line and adopting the Earth's uh, magnetic resonance itself. So that's what we've been finding out lately on some of our Skywatch uh, videos that you'll see up there at UFOI team on Facebook. Yeah, uh, it almost sounds like you're saying that these uh, crafts are actually uh, a, a living organism if they are making some kind of conscious decision to imitate um, you know, Earth's uh, sound waves. Yeah, that's a great uh, analysis as well because um, I don't know how many um, experiencers I've heard uh, that have claimed to be abductees, maybe even flown in these ships, that say that these things uh, seem to be alive. They seem to meld in with um, the uh, the people who are operating them, the entities that are operating with them. That's you've, you've heard the term where people will put their hands on uh, uh, some kind of a surface on the object, and it actually follows their thought patterns, you know, as far as mm -hmm. traveling. You wonder okay. if that's the case, that this maybe these craft are some kind of hybrid technology and biology at the same time. Yeah, uh, that thought has to cr cross one's mind. And, and you know, since we are get, getting into 
some weird stuff like uh, like that, uh, except for the Canadian geese. But uh, um, you know, this is uh, uh, a not uh, normal conversation that most people have. But with information like we've discussed tonight with the Roswell crash and the living flying things, um, since you you were a vice president of a a Christian college, is it a paradox to – um, get into studying these un- unusual uh, topics and still you know, profess to have a faith? You know, that's a great question, Mark. Um, myself, I don't believe it's a paradox. Um, I've always been a faith-based guy my whole life, raised as a, a meth- in the Methodist church, you know, growing up and was a uh, involved in my youth group, you know, in church. And then, of course, uh, as I got older in in life, I actually attended a Pentecostal church for uh, over a couple decades and was uh, in the church choir, very involved as well. And, of course, as you mentioned, I was vice president of Puget Sound Christian College here in the Seattle area as well. But, uh, you know, I I had always been that uh, interesting kid in Sunday school that would be asking the strange questions like, you know, gosh, there's some really interesting stuff in the uh, Bible, the Old Testament, the New Testament. And uh, I'd always be asking about Ezekiel's wheel, you know, to the Sunday school teacher and uh, the whole idea mm-hmm. of uh, Genesis 4, you know, where the sons of man, sons of God are taking the, uh, the daughters of man and having children that are giants, you know, and all those kinds of things. So uh, I don't think it's... Um, out of line at all to talk about uh, the supernatural uh, in the sacred scriptures. Literally, uh, there are uh, ghosts and giants and witches and all sorts of aerial activity and phenomena that are unexplained in the Bible that are um, kind of skirted over in most cases, of course. You know, uh, when you go to your normal church service uh, down in the corner of the Baptist church or or whatever and hear the, the local sermon. So, I've always been interested in that. Then when I went to law school, I, of course, carried that over my interest in the paranormal and the the Fortean over into literally helping um, people and organizations that were involved in the paranormal as well. Um, I've represented many clients over the years, all the way back to uh, Dr. James Harder uh, in the APRO, Aerial Phenomena Research Organization, back in the 70s and uh, all the way up to the present day with uh, uh, Chief Officer, uh, Chief Petty Officer Kevin Day and the Nimitz uh, um, uh, veterans as well. Nimitz and Princeton uh, folks, a lot of those guys uh, at UAPX are my clients as well, including Peter Davenport and the National UFO Reporting Center. So I, I've really had a, a really amazing experience being able to uh, combine my interests Uh, with my profession as well, Uh, being a lawyer now for over 35 years and also a retired Superior Court judge, pro tem. 
the about with the yeah, example seem I don't know what else you know call you know you also have zombies and red uh hallucinogenic type character appearing in revelation uh, it just seems like these unexplained phenomena ever since could rise and before that you know chiseling uh, the same uh, just stories into uh, you know the side of a pyramid or rock rock wall outcropping or something like that. It's like there's it's been in here that's little outside of our uh, standing. Yeah, gosh, uh, you're breaking up a little bit, Mark, here, but I think I can comment on oh. what you just what you just said. Um, literally, the the whole idea of uh, each denomination here on our small little planet trying to explain the whole idea of uh, the source, God, uh, is very difficult, I think, from our perspective. I mean, given the fact that uh, literally um, our small section of the universe is just a small sliver of what the entire universe looks like. It's like, you know, the movie Contact when... Jodie Foster's character says, it seems like a real waste of space out there if we're the only life mm-hmm. that exists. Uh, that, that's, that's the truth, I, I really believe. I think that our sacred scriptures are just uh, our small attempt to explain the whole idea of a concept of a God that is much bigger, much, much bigger than any denomination on our planet is... Uh, giving it credit for at this point. I mean, indeed, if you just think of the Hubble uh, deep field photograph uh, alone, the fact that uh, they decided at one point to take the Hubble telescope, focus it in on a very uh, dark area of the night sky, and try to uh, illuminate it as much as possible to see if there was anything out there and I understand it was about the width of a dime held at arm's length that they tried to focus on. And when they finally processed all of that uh, light uh, emissions uh, into an actual photograph, it showed literally thousands and thousands of galaxies where we thought there was just blank space out there. Uh, So if indeed we have trillions and trillions of galaxies and our galaxy alone is 100,000 light years across. Oh, my. Uh, gives you an idea how large God really is. <laughs> it, so with, with all of this, um, vast amount of, Space 
within the universe uh when you said a hundred thousand light years across um and there are you know uh different, you know, living humanoids and beings out there, um, there is a need for some kind of law and order. Uh, And, you know, I know you wanted to get into talking about space law. Is that a new field, or was something established? Uh, Just say, like uh, in 1969, with the uh, moon landing, and it's just been slowly progressing since then. We got the uh, new. uh, space program that uh, w- was announced a few months ago. Uh, is there some type of uh, quorum that is formulating space laws? You know, I I don't know that there is officially. Um, I have always thought that that is something that we need to head towards myself. I, I've actually coined the, the term exo-jurisprudence in that regard, kind of, kind of like exopolitics, you know, the whole idea that, okay. uh, you know, we have to reach out into the cosmos at one point with our uh, mm-hmm. uh, man-made systems to uh, correspond or at least communicate uh, with uh, whatever cosmic community is out there. And I would imagine at one point we are very quickly, I think, going to have to deal with the idea that uh, other life forms on other planets out there and maybe even our near universe uh, will be interacting with us. And, of course, you know, our Ten Commandments, <laughs> our, our uh, Maharabic Code you know, all these things that have come from common law that we are used to as far as our own earth-based uh, legal systems uh, might have to be tweaked a bit or at least uh, interacted with in other legal systems. So I thought that that was always something that I would be interested in doing. And, you know, my my local uh, bar association here in the state of Washington actually uh, was kind enough uh, to do a really well-balanced and nice article in the uh, in the a monthly uh, newsletter that goes out to all the legal professionals in the state, including all the attorneys. Uh, and they monitored me in that letter and uh, that article, the paranormal lawyer. Uh, so I literally had brought up the idea that, you know, we, we need to start thinking about these things. If indeed at one point uh, the government is poised upon the uh, tract of saying, well, guess what? There are some life out there. Uh, on other planets, and we're probably going to have to deal with them. Uh, I don't want to be behind the eight ball, you know, in that regard. I want to be forward thinking and coming up with uh, some kind of a plan to, uh, you know, it's like the old Star Trek or this um, uh, Star Wars scenario where you're sitting around, uh, you know, that bar 
you know, with people from different planets and different <laughs> characters. They all have their own legal systems that they come from. And if you uh, uh, basically cross one of their, um, uh, you know, uh, their, their own uh, legal problems or issues and stuff, you know that real quickly and you might not have known about it ahead of time. So something to think about. I think it's very fascinating to think that we are literally as uh, a, a, an organization, a, a, a society in our planet now getting close to actually reaching off planet and being involved in whatever is out there in our uh, our cosmic uh, neighborhood, I believe. Yeah, well, th- there are obviously the night. Okay. Go ahead, Barbara. Step um, in. As far as law goes, how would you determine whose law you would be adhering to? Assuming that this other culture had laws of their own. Yeah, great question, Barb. Matter of fact, you know, that kind of brings up, in my mind, the whole idea of this uh, Graeta Treaty. I don't know if you remember this whole idea where supposedly uh, President Eisenhower, you know, was supposedly meeting with a uh, contingent of off-world extraterrestrials uh, at... uh, one of the Air Force bases, and they actually came up with the idea of some kind of a treaty, supposedly. Uh, this is the yeah. story that, um, you know, there were they would allow these off-world entities to uh, study us, potentially abduct a few of us on the planet, as long as they uh, provided us with a up-to-date list of the people that they were experimenting on uh, and looking into. Uh, and in return, we were going to get, I believe, in that, that treaty, some um, technical uh, expertise that they had that we did not have. So, uh, of course, the theory is, uh, the story is on that thing, is that the Graeta Treaty was uh, quickly uh, broached or breached by one side or maybe even both sides uh, of the, uh, of the uh, uh, agreement. So, you know, you would think, you're right. Um, is there a prime directive out there that uh, would be overarching, you know, in this regard? Or whose whose canon of law do you follow in which jurisdiction? Or or is there a cosmic law that overrides it all that we don't even know about? Exactly, exactly. What what if um, there is a ultimate Ten Commandments, or maybe more or less? Uh, than 10 that uh, we uh, have no clue about at this point uh, that will basically uh, turn our own legal system uh, uh, upside down, potentially. We might have to be thinking things uh, through a little bit differently uh, if we understand that we might be in a minority position with our uh, our <laughs> own <be>. legal system. <laughs> um, <laughs> or, or, would the first thing we had to do would be to send a whole bunch of you guys to school in another galaxy to learn what the laws are that we're going to have to abide by. Oh, Barb, can you imagine the bar exam that you'd have to pass for that thing? Holy mackerel. <laughs> oh, yeah, my goodness. Yeah, but think about it. If you're going to school in another galaxy or wherever, 
a lot of it would be telepathic. A lot of it would be downloads of information into you consciously. I, you know, you could probably do the whole thing in a couple of hours. And, wow, and then that would you'd be fascinating. Your school cannot possibly be the same. I mean, it's antiquated as it is. So yeah. there, there has to be, I mean, we're getting into technology and stuff like that, especially with all of this. The kids are going to school, you know, on computers. So the next thing would be to hop it up at another level and, and do away with the computers and use just telep- telepathic communication, which we're capable of, we just don't use. Well, that's a great idea. By the way, um, you know, Grant Cameron, one of my illustrious clients, have always said that that uh, he particularly gets downloads of massive amounts of information that he doesn't know where they come from. Can you imagine Mm -hmm. uh, potentially being uh, downloaded uh, the uh, cosmic code from, you know, another legal system in an overnight session? Uh, Alpha Centauri, sure. Yeah, I, I was lucky enough to cram three years of law school into two, but I can't imagine doing it overnight like that. That would just be a freaky situation, waking up with a whole nother mindset, you know, of a download from another legal system. I, I, I would kind of look forward to that, actually. I mean, I've had downloads, but not of a, you know, a whole thing like, like a legal system or whatever, but, but it, it really is, amazing to suddenly know something that you didn't know when you went to sleep that's a cool thing so yeah. i think we we're, we're going to have to adjust our educational system to be able to cope with something that is above what we've got now i don't think yeah. we're even close and, to it and and in reality that brings up the whole idea of um the difference between actually learning something uh, versus being able to use it in uh, practicality. Uh, yeah. one, of the, uh, one of the things in school is supposedly they give you some kind of uh, practice in what you needed to know and how to use it. Otherwise, uh, it would be very interesting to see how uh, a brand new newbie in uh, a download experience is able to actually uh, carry out the knowledge that they learn so quickly uh, without, uh, you know, the corresponding, um, you know, experience in being able to gather that information. So that's a whole new learning uh, curve that well, we're going to have to get used to as well. Yeah, but knowledge and wisdom are two different things. One, you're a parent, yeah. and the other, you're a prophet. You know, you're able to, to utilize this information. So it's a matter of not just memorizing it, but to knowing what it means. That'd yeah, and that would that would very be uh, very closely track with the whole idea of what they're talking about with AI. You know, the whole idea of uh, biological uh, um, uh, kind of confluence with uh, the artificial intelligence as well. If you could at least have a knowledge but then also be able to download the experience as well into someone's uh, mind. Uh, that would make a, all, all the difference in the world in learning, obviously. Maybe. AI doesn't have a spirit, so it's, it's artificial, therefore not sentient. 
So yes, that could be that could be dangerous because if we gave AI too much too much uh, power, they might decide they didn't need humans anymore, and then we'd be up a creek. Oh, I think we're well on the on that road at this point. We're gonna uh, we're gonna have to be <laughs> very right. vigilant <laughs> that we don't become irrelevant as human beings for sure. Yeah, it's kind of like we could be the virus. <laughs> oh, very great analogy. Yes, and uh, oh, I can see the uh, uh, the movie now. You know, human beings <laughs> being sought out by AI as the virus trying to stamp us out. Yeah. Well, isn't that what? Um, oh God, the Terminator was. Oh the machines yes. Machines were taking over. That's exactly what the Terminators were. And oh I've my goodness! Believed, funny. You know, I've always believed that science fiction was preparing us for reality that was to come. So, watch out. But what yeah, if it definitely. turns out that that it's all just been a flock of Canadian geese. That's the truth <laughs> ending. Could be. You, you know, I, I always keep that in the back of my mind, Mark, is the fact that all these strange phenomena that I've been so fascinated with my whole life, from Bigfoot to ghosts, uh, UFOs and cryptids, all those kind of things, you always wonder if indeed there uh, ends up being a, uh, a, a very good explanation that's uh, – not as strange as we thought, um, how I would react to that as well. Because you got to think of it both ways. You know, how would I handle the idea that uh, there is life on other planets and extraterrestrials are visiting our planet? Or um, what if indeed we are the only things in the universe? If you can't wrap your head around both of those, uh, you're probably not, you know, discerning as far as what uh, information you're obtaining. And once you can you know, give up uh, an agenda either way, then you start gathering the real information. Mm-hmm. I I agree with uh, what you're saying. You, you have to see multiple sides, not your agenda. It, and when you know, you're representing the Nimitz crew, as a you know, paranormal lawyer, uh, you know, what was what was their experience? Uh, you know, we've ha- had some sea monster stories that um, you know, we don't understand everything that's so far beneath the surface uh, of the oceans. Uh, you know, what did the Nimitz crew see, how, you know, and how, how did they get you involved in um, the need to represent them? Well, great question. Um, let's just, just go through the story real quickly if people aren't up to speed on the USS Nimitz uh, UFO encounter of 2004. This is a fascinating subject. Um, okay. Of course, it came out um, on the front page of the New York Times, uh, December 16th of 2017, when we finally found out about this Nimitz UFO encounter that happened in 2004. Uh, but basically what happened was 
the USS Nimitz uh, carrier group, which is a series of six or seven ships and a submarine and, uh, you know, fighter jets. And everybody was out doing some um, some uh, exercises off of the coast of California, San Diego, uh, the Catalina Island area in November of 2004 when uh, uh, Kevin Day, Chief Petty Officer Kevin Day, who was uh, running the uh, radar ship, the USS Princeton at the time, started seeing these flights of strange anomalous returns going north to south, maybe five, ten at a time, very slowly, by the way, only about 200 miles an hour in, um, in traveling, uh, over the surface of the ocean, uh, anywhere from 20,000 feet uh, down to the surface of the ocean, uh, in flights that were going by literally for 10 days. Uh, and finally, he hmm. got to the point where he had to bring that up to his, uh, his ship captain, uh, who said, well, what are they? And he said, I don't know what they are. Uh, this is new returns got from the uh, the brand new at the time Spy One radar system that had just been applied to uh, the USS Princeton. And, of course, they have uh, AWACS um, up in the air airplanes as well with radar uh, dishes on them. And so they have a full coverage of the area there. They're seeing these things. They decided to send the software of the um, the radar system, Spy One radar, in for overhaul just to take a look at it, see if there was any problems with the returns. Indeed, when they got the uh, the system back within the next day or two, uh, there was nothing wrong with the system, and they started continuing to see more and more flights of these uh, UFOs that were seemingly looking the same. Uh, literally, uh, they are estimating about 46 feet in length, shaped exactly like a tic-tac breath mint with no... Uh, uh, aerial surfaces, no exhaust plumes, no nothing, uh, flying by over the surface of the ocean while they were doing their exercises uh, off the southwest uh, coast of uh, San Diego. Finally, um, uh, uh, Chief Officer Petty Day, uh, Chief Officer uh, Day says to his his captain, "We should send some, somebody out there just to check this out." And it did seem to correspond at one point to uh, Commander David Fravor's uh, flight plan with he and uh, his uh, wingman, two different uh, F.A. 18 uh, fighter jets were, were, go- were scheduled to go up. And so they decided to vector these two airplanes in the vicinity of a couple of those returns that they had been following for the previous few days. So... When they sent them up there, they, uh, of course, uh, Commander Fravor had no idea where he was going or what he was going for. They were initially thinking that they were being vectored potentially for a uh, maybe an interdiction drug run or something or something going off on on mm-hmm. off the coast that they needed to look into. Um, and so when they got there, they didn't know what to look for. But the first thing that called their attention to something strange was the fact that there was a major disturbance on the surface of the ocean. Uh, Commander Fravor, I guess, was about 20,000 feet at that point, uh, going to this vector spot that they were sending him to, 
when uh, they finally hit to the point where they called a merge plot, where uh, the uh, radar, which is up in the sky, and the ship uh, radar on the Princeton uh, can see that uh, the jets are right there at the vector spot where this unidentified object is. Commander Fravor looks down and sees that there is a boiling happening on the surface of the ocean. There is white water uh, seemingly boiling in a large area that uh, looks like a huge oval, maybe the size of what he thought would be a 747 uh, jetliner. And he's thinking that maybe this a, an, a, a, a commercial jet that had gone down into the ocean, and these were uh, the bubbles and results of a crashed airplane, commercial airplane. So he decided to uh, go down to investigate at the uh, surface of the uh, ocean level and uh, kept his uh, wingman up in uh, the 20,000-foot level to keep an eye on things. And by the way, his wingman for this uh, this exercise was uh, a navy or uh, a woman pilot who was uh, uh, relatively new, but she had uh, uh, an also um, so, uh, a person in the back seat they called the Wizzo seat, the uh, uh, weapons uh, information uh, officer in the back seat there that was quite uh, um, experienced as well. So both those pilots were staying up high. Uh, Commander Fravor and his Wizzo were going down low. When they got very close to the surface of the ocean, Commander Fravor is claiming that he saw what looked like a giant tic-tac-shaped object about the size of his own airplane, the F-A-18 fighter. And uh, literally, he says that this object was behaving like he had never seen any kind of an object behave before. Literally, he said, it looked like a ping-pong ball. Uh, just bouncing back and forth at the bottom of a jar or a glass so quickly that it didn't change its velocity when it changed its position or direction. He couldn't believe anything could be doing what this was doing. And while he was getting spiraling down to get a closer look, all of a sudden he realizes that this object stops over the hovering uh, foaming ocean and literally locks on uh, to his own jet. He says at one point, I'm engaged, I'm engaged. This thing has got me as in a lock. And literally for uh, I don't know how many minutes, Commander Fravor is corkscrewing down to the surface of the ocean. And this object now is corkscrewing up from the surface of the ocean to meet Commander Fravor in a clockwise um, kind of a dogfight that uh, literally, if he was at 10 o'clock, the, um, the object was uh, at, uh, let's say, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock. It would kept the opposite side of the circle as they're getting closer and closer. Commander Fravor then says that he literally got within about a half a mile, which is not very far when you're in an F-A-18 jet, uh, between him and this object that was now at his same height and altitude, when initially this thing just took off and zipped by his canopy of his FAA chain jet so fast he couldn't even conceive of anything going that quickly. And that was the USS Nimitz UFO encounter that was literally then um, 
caught on tape later on by another flight of FA-18s who literally found that Tic Tac UFO and took the FLIR photography uh, videos that we see all over the Internet. But I'll finish that story with a real fascinating ending to that because in reality, Commander Fravor at the, it was just gobsmacked at the time that this happened. He said, it's gone. Gets on the radio. He's talking with, uh, you know, his, um, his commanding officers and the folks back on the Princeton uh, and says, well, okay, I'm just going to go back to my original position and get ready for our exercise that we're going to do for the rest of the afternoon. When all of a sudden, um, someone from the radar ship, the Princeton says, commander, you're not going to believe this. She says that Tic Tac UFO is now waiting for you at your cap point. And the cap point was where they were supposed to start this whole event of their, um, you know, maneuvers, uh, which was about 60 to 80 miles to the north of them. And the fact that this UFO even knew where their cap point was and was waiting for them to arrive there just blew everyone away. Um, that is the fascinating short story of the Nimitz UFO encounter. Okay, so it, that seems like we're back to these crafts seem like they're alive. They almost have ESP. Some kind of uh, communication you would think, either electronically yeah, yeah, yeah. for some reason. They had an idea of what was programmed into the jet, where they were supposed to go, or uh, uh, telepathically, you're right. It's very fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are a few possibilities there. It, it's uh, back to another uh, eg- example of I, how do you explain that? It, it, you know, they just seem like that the, the UFOs were one step ahead of you know, the people uh, in the humans. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Matter of fact, the story does not end there uh, for the U.S. uh, Nimitz UFO encounter because a lot of people don't know the rest of the story. But later on that evening, after the Tic Tac UFO uh, footage was captured on FLIR photography, uh, after everything had settled down that evening, literally there was a a synchronistic uh, event that happened on the USS Nimitz, where one of the uh, sailors uh, working off the back deck, putting all of the uh, um, the FA-18 jets away in the hangar underneath the deck, uh, fell off the ship that night. It was dark. It was late. Uh, and the ship went into um, high um, emergency mode uh, to try to make sure they didn't lose this uh, this uh, Navy man. And in reality, they had um, difficulty getting their, um, their rescue boat up in line to go out and get this gentleman who was, of course, bobbing in the ocean with his um, life preservers on and his light uh, that was uh, keeping an eye or a light was letting people know where he was. And there were gentlemen mm-hmm. on the deck underneath with binoculars keeping an eye on him when in reality what happened was Another Tic Tac UFO, bright, 
came and hovered over this uh, this navy person in the uh, in the ocean and was just waiting there for someone to come and rescue him, uh, which eventually had happened to happen. But it was almost a strange event that um, this same kind of craft, uh, tic tac shape, uh, that was seen through binoculars and through uh, you know there's the uh, the officers that were um, uh, trying to rescue this this person in the ocean who was literally hovering over this gentleman all the time that he was out there uh, waiting to be rescued. That's a fascinating part of the story people don't really know about uh, because it hasn't been talked about a lot. Okay. Well, uh, well, you know, it's the first time I've heard it. You know, what you were just mentioning uh, with the – Hovering over a person, uh, you know, they can go back to uh, w- what could be, uh, you know, the Star of Bethlehem could be you know, misidentified as uh, a UFO hovering over the manger. Bingo. You got it. That's one of those things I always thought about as a kid going, wow, so this star moved, huh? And it led the wise men through the desert to uh, a small little stable. That's a fascinating story. I love it. Yeah, but it, it's in in both cases. Um, you have the UFO as being a almost like a, a protector, something hovering over someone. Uh, in need. So it's just yes, exactly. Uh, very interesting. And here's the thing: I would love to be able to interview, or at least hear an interview with that uh, rescued sailor uh, of what he saw and experienced out there alone in the middle of the ocean with a, a tic-tac UFO hovering over him. Wouldn't that been have been an amazing story to mm-hmm. hear? It, it, does, and does what, why does the, the crew need to, uh, you know, like hire you as a paranormal lawyer to, Get the their, their word out. Is you know is, there, is that like you know breaking uh, military confidentiality? No, uh, no, not you know, great. Great question, Mark. Um, uh, all of them are retired, of course, from the military at this point. But uh, at one point, um, I had been contacted uh, uh, through, I think. Uh, uh, mutual clients of mine, Grant Cameron, uh, introduced me mm-hmm. to uh, uh, Petty Officer Kevin Day, Chief Officer Kevin Day, and uh, literally he um, uh, wanted to get together a group of his uh, veteran uh, buddies to literally go back out again to see if they could, with sophisticated gear, uh, find these Tic Tac UFOs again off the coast of uh, Catalina Island in San Diego. So uh, he was. Con- he contacted me to help him put together a nonprofit uh, corporate entity that they could 
literally um, have a business entity put together so they can um, get some gear together. Uh, they can, uh, mm. you know, get a get a couple ships literally with uh, uh, the equipment that they need to go back out again. And they are planning. This is a UAPX, by the way. It's the organization called UAPX, and you can find them on Facebook and YouTube and and all over the internet because they are planning again to take out some sophisticated camera gear, uh, electronic, uh, you know, uh, probes and those kinds of things. Even sonar, by the way, because indeed the USS Nimitz was. Uh, accompanied by a submarine that literally caught one of those Tic Tac UFOs traveling at superior speeds under the water as well. So um, all of that gear is being planned to go back out potentially in December of this year if everything works out well. Uh, And, of course, there have been uh, uh, many uh, uh, production companies and uh, uh, different channels uh, out there on uh, cable that have been trying to put together or want to put together uh, a production of them preparing to do this and actually pulling this off. So they've been needing uh, some contract uh, reviews and and uh, help in that regard as well. Um, they have a, a really great uh, Hollywood agent by the name of Dave Altman who has been helping them uh, navigate the uh, Hollywood production company process as well as these uh, veterans are being now inundated with, uh, you know, the idea that uh, people want to find out exactly what they're doing and planning for this coming winter time, which, by the way, seems to have corresponded to the uh, whale migrations off the coast of California as well. So the theory could be that there is some interest in these UFOs and the whale migrations, or who knows, maybe they're even communicating with the sentient species on the planet, the whales as well. So that's what we're kind of keeping that in mind. Wow. Okay. Uh, that would be some interesting uh, research if UFOs have switched from how stupid many humans are to studying whales. Exactly. I mean, who knows uh, where we stack up on the uh, sentient level here on the planet. If indeed uh, whales are much smarter than we are in dealing with uh, extraterrestrials, who knows? I mean, it's been fascinating in that regard. Um, uh, Another interesting uh, thing that uh, we've been able to do with the idea that, uh, Uh, The whale migrations might have something to do with the flights and timing of these Tic Tac UFOs is uh, the group that I have founded and uh, direct to the UFO I team. We we have technical gear that is really sophisticated ourselves. And one of the things that we have uh, from an inventor uh, member of our team called Dave Mason is he has invented a pair of uh, high-powered uh, binoculars that can turn light frequency into sound and literally uh, put that sound on an oscilloscope uh, to compare it with known sounds, known frequency, mm-hmm. so we can determine if an object in a night sky is an anomalous object or if it's a shooting star or a satellite. We can determine that now. Um, 
when I uh, and in reality, what uh, Dave Mason is now allowed him, uh, us to do is he can take that sound signature uh, and actually turn it back into light frequency and he can broadcast it in a diffused laser straight back to the source. So that brings up the whole idea of potential CE5 connections where human initiated contact with extraterrestrials could potentially happen with electronic devices that we've come up with. Now, when I heard Dave Mason and his new invention come uh, forth on the iTeam with uh, this new gear, I said, Dave, have you heard that the USS Nimitz guys have found out that those flights of uh, Tic Tac UFOs may correspond to the, uh, the whale migrations in the area off the coast of uh, San Diego at the time. What if, since you have this capability, what if you could broadcast whale sounds into the night sky? What would that do? What could we do with that? And could potentially we uh, pick up some um, extra anomalous objects? And indeed, that's what we are doing now with Dave Mason's technology we literally have been uh, broadcasting whale and dolphin sounds into the night sky in a diffused laser. It's not necessarily in a shotgun mode, but we can target it to certain sections of the uh, night sky. And literally we have caught on videotape at the UFO I-Team uh, Facebook page, tic-tac-shaped and other-shaped UFOs corresponding to the broadcast that we're making of whale sounds into the night sky. So that's just another further conundrum that we're running across here and this whole idea of potential alien contact or off-planet contact with uh, extraterrestrial sources. Well, you're always welcome to come back and tell us about your conclusions. Oh, definitely. Wouldn't that be fun if we... uh, when, when the UAPX folks um, get some more scientific data, and that's what they're all about, is literally gathering the data one way or another of what's going to happen when they go back out with the sensitive gear and equipment uh, that will uh, manifest itself <clears throat> above and beyond what the SPY-1 radar had at that point. Uh, we will definitely want to contact you again and get back on the air and tell you what our findings are. Hey, Michael. Yeah, well, wasn't one of the Star Trek movies about going into the past and getting whales and bringing them back to the future? You got it. Wasn't that a great uh, episode? Oh, my goodness. Um, I was really interested in the theory of that happening well before, by the way, that Star Trek uh, uh, film happening well before what happened to the Tic Tac uh, UFO Nimitz encounter. Uh, it's like you said, Barb, it's like uh, Hollywood is kind of like uh, forecasting what reality is doing. Definitely. <laughs> and, 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 you know, last week, uh, you know, I think it was, well, it was either Zelia or Steve. Uh, it was, uh, you know, we were talking about the, uh, John Keel was doing, something similar by uh, communicating with uh, UFOs over the Ohio River by uh, just turning on and off his uh, headlights. 
it's very rudimentary to the uh, gadgets you're using, but it's basically the same point as uh, you know using uh, electronic communication to uh, have send Morse code to a UFO to descend. And that's what it did. Yes, exactly. As a matter of fact, that is the classic CE5 close encounters of the fifth kind scenario, human initiated contact uh, with anomalous objects. Uh, The idea that uh, uh, actually one of my clients, Dr. Richard Haynes, who is the chief scientist from NASA, who also ran the uh, NARCAP agency, which was the pilot reporting agency uh, for UFOs uh, for many years. He wrote the book on CE5 and coined that term, the idea that uh, people literally have for decades uh, initiated contact with uh, lights, uh, different sources of uh, communication, and received corresponding uh, uh, you know, signals back from uh, alien craft. As a matter of fact, uh, on the UFO I-Team Facebook page, uh, Lee Strauss, one of our intrepid cameramen, has got an amazing video that literally he interacts with an anomalous aerial object multiple times, three or four times, asking it uh, verbally to flare up on tape. And it does. Uh, right after he's asking it to do it in in not rhythmic mode, but arrhythmic mode. So it couldn't be just uh, something that happens uh, without him asking it to flare up. So those things are classic as far as people's ability to uh, uh, have return communication with extraterrestrial potentially craft. Yeah, neat. Neat, neat. Uh, just- just fascinating uh, material, and you know, Michael, we uh, ha- have just a, a few more minutes with you. Uh, I mean, f- find a quick question. Uh, uh, oh, um, you you recently got together with uh, Clifford Mahoudi and Daryl Sims. Uh, you know, they're uh, some leading researchers. I've had a chance to talk with uh, uh, Clifford briefly. Um, it, it, you know, he's he, he brings a unique perspective uh, with his uh, heritage. Uh, you know, what what have you learned from uh, uh, Clifford? He's uh, frequently on uh, you know the lecture circuit and. Uh, very very knowledgeable about um, a lot of U, uh, UFO uh, information in the desert southwest area. Yes, of course. Um, uh, I was lucky enough to be able to uh, appear with uh, Clifford Mahoudi uh, at the um, Quinault Beach UFO uh, Paranormal Conference. Uh, just recently here at the first part of March, before everything shut down, it was probably the last major uh, UFO uh, paranormal gathering before the coronavirus shut everyone down and had a wonderful time be able to uh, have lunch and 
hang out with uh, Clifford, uh, who is a, a Zuni American Indian elder uh, and was able to uh, relate to all of us during the conference and myself in private uh, conversations about the idea that the American Indians, the indigenous people of our country, uh, literally have had relationships with uh, these entities, these uh, these craft, uh, as well as uh, potentially Bigfoot as well. Uh, the actual, you know, hominids on the planet that uh, they literally had been sharing their um, their space with you know, in the Southwest and all over the United States, obviously with other tribes as well. So uh, he is a very, uh, by the way, I didn't realize that Clifford Mahoudi uh, literally is a um, uh, a civil uh, engineer himself. He is mm-hmm. quite highly educated uh, within uh, the culture of the white man, but he uh, maintains his uh, indigenous culture uh, and is kind of a... Uh, Oh, I, I think a, a conduit between the two cultures and explaining what really has been happening on our planet uh, that has kind of been covered up by, uh, you know, mainstream media uh, and science over the years. Yeah, I, I, I just got the impression of him that he, he's a very humanitarian uh, person with his uh, engineering and uh, working with uh, so many uh, uh, you know, people to uh, bridge the gap of understanding. Oh, he's uh, a ge- gentleman with a you know brief conversation I had with him. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, great guy to talk to. He loves to uh, spend time with you and very sincere person. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, uh, Daryl Sims has been uh, you know, a pioneer in uh, the, the, the screen memory. Is that correct? Oh, yes. Screen memories and uh, alien implant removals and detection mm-hmm. as well. Uh, he was the gentleman who actually got Dr. Roger uh, Lear uh, involved in oh. the whole idea of alien implant retrieval uh, as well. So uh, uh, Daryl Sims is a great hero of mine, uh, the alien hunter, they call him, uh, from the great state of Texas. And uh, it was great to hang out with uh, Daryl as well at the Quinault Beach UFO Summit uh, just this last March as well. Okay. Um you know, Mike, we're, I don't know how much uh, time you have remaining, uh, say about five minutes. Is there anything you want to uh, plug one of, you know, just make sure you have plenty of time to do that? Oh, thank you so much, Mark and Barb. I really enjoyed uh hanging out with you guys here for the last couple hours. This has been very, uh, I think, informative, hopefully, for your listeners and even myself, you know, being able to talk with uh, knowledgeable hosts and, and folks like yourself <laughs> that have been in this field for so long. Gosh, I love it. We'll have to do it again. I really appreciate the invite back. And uh, 
We would just like to ask uh, people to, if they want. They can go to the UFO I-Team on Facebook. They can go to our YouTube page, UFO I-Team, and uh, UFOiTeam.com as well uh, on the Internet. Just to find out what we're doing lately, uh, my uh, own Facebook page is Michael W. Hall, uh, the paranormal lawyer as well. They can go there and find most of the same things. And Gosh, uh, it's been fun. I can't believe two hours has gone by already, but... Uh, like I mentioned earlier, I'm, I literally have to do an episode of uh, another show uh, right now in the next uh, five minutes. So I better get off here and let them be able to contact me so I can get on uh, for another couple hours tonight. So it's going to be a long, fun night for me. Okay. okay. Uh, what show are you going to be on so people can go from us to the oh, other? Oh, God. Two. Well, thank you for that. It's going to be uh, Midnight in the Desert tonight. Uh, that I'll be on. Yeah, uh, I'm I'm really looking forward to that. That's going to be um, Midnight in the Desert uh, starting in about uh, 10 minutes, looks like. Uh, and Tim Weisberg is the host, of course, uh, tonight on that show. So uh, we'll we'll be getting into maybe some of the things that we've talked about already, but uh, hopefully get into some different subjects on Midnight in the Desert as well. Okay. And uh, Barbara, do you want to... Wrap up anything? Yes, I'll be happy to wrap up, Mark. Um, Mark and Michael, thank you both so much for for giving us an amazing show. I've thoroughly enjoyed listening, and and I only had – I I stopped myself because I got so excited at a couple places I wanted to put three cents worth in. But um, fascinating information, new stuff that I hadn't heard before, and certainly I am looking forward to – having Michael on the Monday night show sometime down the road here so we can so I can, you know, dig in a little deeper and, and not have to hold my tongue back. It's been a great evening. Thank you both. And thank you everyone for listening and sharing your time with us. We greatly appreciate it. On Thursday at ten o'clock in the morning, I have Andrew Silverman on the show, so please if you've got a chance and you have the time, stop in and listen then. Until then, good night everybody.